to thank those of you who are visiting us once again. And I want to welcome you on sort of a journey that we started last week. Uh, we're going to be journeying for the next couple of months, Lord willing, through the Old Testament. In particular, taking a while to consider the different covenants that God has, has made with His people throughout the ages. That God is building an everlasting kingdom through these covenants. And that the ultimate and the final covenant in His one and only Son is what we have been brought into. But sometimes it's good to look back and to understand how this all took place and how we got here. So I'm calling this, this series The Foundations of the Faith. And last week we began in Genesis 1, looking at creation, considering primarily the nature of the one true God, who is Lord of heaven and earth. And He made all things from nothing for His own glory. And the pinnacle of the creation made for His glory is us, mankind, the human race made in the image of God. And I want to invite you at this time to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We'll see a number of things in there. And as always, there's more than I will be able to cover this morning that will be left. But in particular, God especially zooms in on the nature of the relationship between Him and mankind and between the two sexes or the two genders of male and female in a holy union called marriage. I'm going to start in verse 15 of Genesis 2. And you can follow along. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to, care, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the ribs from the man and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask that you would bless your word, that you would bless us to be shaped by these truths we're going to consider. And we ask that you would do this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the sermon today is entitled, Lord of Justice 
and grace. And I have three points that I want us to consider from this text and a little bit of chapter 3. The first one is this. Original goodness. Consider the original goodness in all of life's relationships. The, the first chapter is filled with that. Genesis chapter 1. We need to consider all the goodness in all of life's relationships. And secondly, original sin, which has corrupted everything. And last, the ultimate promise of God's justice and grace. So let's look at this first point. Original goodness in all of life's relationships. Last week, again, to to remind you, I read through chapter 1 into chapter 2, verse 3. And the way that God chooses to reveal Himself in those 34 verses that we looked at is with the three-letter word or title, God. 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 He fills the first section of the Bible so clearly with Himself to make it clear that He is to be preeminent in everything. But notice how starting from verse 4 of chapter 2, if you look up at verse 4, God is revealed with an additional name or title now. Lord God. L-O-R-D, all caps, is translated from Yahweh. That was the personal covenantal name by which God chose to reveal himself to his covenant people throughout the Old Testament. That's the same name Moses would have heard coming from the burning bush as we have it recorded in Exodus 3. Here we see God interacting with Adam not only as his creator, but walking closely and personally with him in a personal kind of relationship. God personally took Adam into Eden. He personally brought the animals to Adam to name every single one of them. Adam had that privilege. As part of God's purpose to, to, to rule over and to care for creation, Adam named all the animals. And eventually he even gave the title woman and the name Eve to his wife. So we see here the goodness of our original relationships with God, with each other, and even with creation itself. Good. As the saying goes, it was all good. Literally, it was all good. Right here in the Garden of Eden, God is establishing a covenant with Adam in this sense. And Adam stands as the head of all humanity, as the federal head, as some theologians have described it. So everything that is in Adam and that takes place because of Adam, we inherit by nature. But along with Adam's relationship with the Lord God, Eve was made from Adam to be the perfect, complementary companion and suitable helper for him in the life and all the work that God had called him to do. At this point in time, we see that work itself was not a burden. It was free from stress and toil. We'll notice in chapter 3, in the, the judgment of God, the implications of that judgment is that work was free from stress and any burden. The only attitude that we see in humanity's relationship with God and with each other and their tasks is an attitude of joy, of freedom, 
of peace, of wholeness. Something the Hebrew word shalom communicates. We see at the end of chapter 2 that God has also chosen to reveal His image in a unique way through the goodness of the relationship between Adam and Eve known as marriage. And the word marriage is not there, but look at those words again in Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And the word husband is later used to describe Adam in chapter 3. So these are not man-made concepts. Remember, we're looking at creation and we're considering God who created this first ever institution, marriage. As hard as it is for us to imagine, there was once a time when nothing bad existed. There were no challenges, and, and the challenges and brokenness that we now experience in our lives, in relationship to God, in relationship to each other, and with all of life in general. There was once a time when it was only very good. That's the refrain from each day of creation, and it was good. And then on the sixth day, it was very good. Look at the, the end of chapter 1 again, verse 31. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And then you, you look at the final words of chapter 2 in verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. No shame no guilt very good obviously we don't live in this world today so what has happened which brings us to the second point original sin has corrupted everything it's not the, the nicest topic to think about but when you go to a doctor's office you need to know what the proper diagnosis is so that you can get the correct remedy. So look at chapter 3, just the beginning with me. We'll see a few words here, and we'll witness the original temptation, sin, and the fall of mankind. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Lord willing, Next week, we're going to look a little bit more into this passage before we move on. But I want to point out at least two useful lessons that we can learn from these verses. In Genesis 2, 
we see that before God created Eve, He spoke to Adam. It was Adam who received the command from God not to eat from the tree. And if you notice earlier in in chapter 2, God makes it very clear that there's nothing wrong with the tree. He does not create anything bad. The tree itself is good. What was bad was that first act of disobedience against the Lordship of God. It was only Adam who received this command and it was Adam who named all the animals. It was Adam who named Eve. God was interacting with him previously before Eve came and blessed his life. God promised Adam that death would come if he disobeyed. And so the first simple lesson is this. God always keeps his word. He will not compromise on his word. His word is trustworthy and true as a reflection of his character. This speaks of God's righteousness, his holiness, his justice, which we're going to consider some more in the next point. But the second lesson is this. God has built in an unchangeable order into the distinction of these two sexes, these two genders. He's created an order. He's created roles, especially within the context of marriage. Who is it that Satan spoke to? Satan approached Eve. He spoke to the woman. God had spoken to Adam. And as a part of his initial responsibility to lead Eve, he should have both instructed her against the deception, guarded her from Satan, and stepped into the midst of that conversation. After all, the text states that he was there. In fact, God throughout Scripture makes this clear, and he says that it is Adam's failed leadership primarily which brought about the fall. There are many texts, but there's one in Romans 5, verse 19, which says this. And it's, it's showing you the same lesson, but also giving us hope. It says, for just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, that one man being Adam. So also through the obedience of one man, that is Christ, the many will be made righteous, those who trust in him. Satan, knowing there was nothing wrong with the fruit itself, and knowing that Adam was designed to lead Eve, decided to ask Eve these questions. This caused her to start doubting God's word, or at least misunderstanding, and by extension, doubting and misunderstanding God's character. And then she led her husband within this deception. Now, it's important for me to make a a distinction between Eve's role of submission versus leadership and Eve's worth and dignity. We have to make sure we understand this. As I mentioned last week, God himself is one being who exists in three persons, the blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person equal in worth, in dignity, in their essence, in their nature, co-equal, co-eternal. But we see a distinction in the order of the persons of the Trinity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a unique role that they're each playing, both in Genesis 1 in creation and in the new creation. The Father speaks to the Son, not only in saying, let us make man in our likeness and image in Genesis 1.26, but also from the beginning, as we said last week, Genesis 1.1, let there be light. It is the Father speaking to the Son, and John 1 made it clear, through Him, the Son, all things are made. It is the Father who sends the Son to redeem those who will believe. And there is an, no, no point at which there is any role reversal. We would dare not say that the Father was crucified or sent by the Son. That would be blasphemy. In fact, there's actually a sense in which Jesus submits. I'm using that word intentionally. Jesus submits to the will of the Father eternally, or at the very least, stands in a posture of submission to Him as His Father, just by the nature of being the Son. Yet He's equal to the Father in nature. All this to say that it seems pretty clear that when God made us male and female, part of how we were intended to bear His image, friends, included this kind of distinction and order. That was the case before Satan came around and tempted us into the fall. But right here, in this momentary act of disobedience, which began in the hearts of Adam and Eve, we see that sin entered through a distortion of a God-given pattern. Now every heart is by nature turned from God. Now everyone is, as Ephesians 2 puts it, dead spiritually in trespasses and sins and needs to be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, which we'll get to later. This is bad news, but it's against the backdrop of the bad news of what sin has done to our world. And by the way, there's no other way to explain what's going on between Russia and the Ukraine. There's no other way to explain why Satan has done such a good job through all types of different avenues of attacking the family, which is the core unit of society. We see how vital it is that we understand these things. And it's against the backdrop of this bad news that God actually is the first person to preach the gospel. This is the last point, the ultimate promise of God's justice and grace. Did you hear what I just said? God is the first person who preaches the gospel. Look at Genesis 3.15 with me and listen to how God speaks to Satan here. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, singular, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here, God is communicating a guarantee of justice and grace. God will not leave sin unpunished. That would be unjust. And if we would be upset for a judge in a court in the human realm not to do justice, we should be equally moved if God were not just, but He is. God will punish sin, but not just the fruit of it, 
also the root. He gets right down to the heart of the matter. And he's making a promise saying that in the same way that Satan brought destruction into this world through the deception of Eve and the failed leadership of Adam, thinking that he had cleverly undone everything, God is saying that I'm going to see to it that through another woman there will come another son who will function as a kind of second Adam or last Adam. And through him, salvation will ultimately be accomplished. He will crush the serpent's head. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's not clear enough yet. Jesus will undo all that Satan has done. He will be the perfect groom, unlike Adam or any of us men. He will be the perfect groom and he will protect and provide for and sustain forever his bride, the church, those who repent and believe in him. He will take upon himself the sins of those who turn to him in faith and be crushed by the Father on our behalf, on Calvary's cross. Everyone from Adam to the last moment he returns who trusts in him will have their sin dealt with. When he comes, he will make a new creation when he comes a second time where there will, there will be a perfect glorified existence for all of us who trust in him. He will be the, the head of a new glorified humanity. And this is one of the first places in the Bible that we, we see that humanity is simply divided into two kinds of people. Those who stand on the side of the serpent, rejecting to believe in the only Son of God, rejecting to believe in the serpent crusher, rejecting to take God at His word, and everyone else who chooses to trust Him as the only hope of salvation. When He returns, there will only be two kinds of people. Those of us who are already living in this new creation life whose penalty is dealt with, or those who will actually be crushed eternally by the judgment of Jesus Christ. That is how serious the matter is. Paul says in light of things like this, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's all about how we receive Christ. And even though it was a little bit more vague in the garden, it's all about how we receive the Word of God. More fully revealed now for us today. The question is not whether we were in the building on days like today whether we are in the building now, but whether we are in Christ by faith alone. That is the question that we have to answer. Or you could say it like this, the question is not, where is God in the midst of all this mess that we're living in? But where are you? Where am I in relation to God? This is more likely what God meant, considering the fact that He's omniscient. And he knew where Adam was geographically. This is more likely what God was prying Adam to think about when he asked him, Adam, where are you in the garden? Where are you in relation to God this morning? 
or tonight, whenever you're hearing this recording. That is what we need to be sure of, that we have been made right with the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of justice and grace. Have we been born again? If yes, are we proclaiming this gospel to others who don't yet know? Even when it seems discouraging and disheartening and like there's no hope for those we want to see come to know the Lord. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. God made Christ be treated as if He deserved what we deserve for our sin so that in Him, if we're trusting in Him, we become the righteousness of God. This is the foundation of who we are and what we do, church. All Christian churches. Subsequently, it is because true marriage represents the gospel of Jesus Christ that we hold it so dearly. And if we commit or condone the evil of distortion, the distortion of marriage in any way, we're disobeying God's word. Whether it be in the form of playing marriage, we see this run rampant in this society, in the world. Whether we're playing marriage through sexual activity without the covenant commitment, or being unfaithful to our wife or husband in person, or otherwise, or getting a divorce without biblical grounds to do so, or abusing a spouse in any way, or attempting the impossible act of quote-unquote marrying someone of the same gender. If we commit or condone any of these things, then we are being unfaithful and unloving to the one true God who made all things, including marriage as well as those involved. These decisions create a number of generational problems as well, and I'm sure every one of us in this room or hearing my voice can attest to that in some way. And before we move away from this section in later sermons, while we're in the realm of Genesis 1 and 2, considering the image of God, we need to get it straight that the image of God is stamped on every human being from the point of conception. Therefore, as far as I can tell, from God's viewpoint, abortion is mass murder and is the greatest genocide in history, no matter how we choose to mask it. And I say this, I think, in a timely season. Governments were made to protect human life, not to legalize murder. Therefore, acts such as abortion or any corruption of the true marriage should be understood from a Christian perspective as Satan's attempt at assaulting the image of God and explain for us why we have the mess in the world today that we live in. So we must not act as if these things are not vital. And if we act as if these types of things are acceptable, 
then we're not being faithful to God and we need to repent. And we need to come back and re-examine how God has made this world. We need to apply this to ourselves first though, church. It's very often easy to hear things like this and agree with it. But we need to apply this to ourselves. We should be a people who are displaying the goodness of marriage to ourselves, to our children, and to the world watching us. So that our lives match our words, or more importantly, our lives match God's word. God, thankfully, grants all true believers not just his word, but also himself. This is the amazing message of the gospel. Not just that Jesus has accomplished an amazing work, but that part of his work which he accomplished included the sending of the Holy Spirit so that we can have new hearts, new desires that seek to live in obedience to his word and that taste and see that the Lord is good. God will also discipline us if we don't do this. But his discipline is meant to help us grow. As Hebrews 12 puts it, every loving father disciplines his children. And we need to make it a point to experience the goodness that God has laid out so simply in his word. Although it's not easy, it is simple. We need to ask him, church, to help us in this way. I don't want to be ignorant that someone hearing my voice today might not be out of the woods, so to speak. Perhaps some or many who are listening to me are currently experiencing the reality of the lasting hardships which come from broken, distorted marriages or the ungodly lifestyles that we ourselves or others choose to live. Perhaps you're suffering from physical or emotional or psychological trauma from some of these, from the impact of some of these things. So please hear me well. This great God of all creation who is Lord of heaven and earth and who is Lord of justice is again the God of all grace. This is the one true God who delights to forgive those who turn to his son in faith. And not just to forgive, but to make new. He is in the business of complete redemption. God's gospel of grace is not just about forgiveness, but also about new power from above. New power from within, as he makes us not only individual new creations, but brings us into the reality of new creation life until we fully see it one day. He will give you the power not just to be forgiven, but also to be healed, to be strengthened, and to walk in newness of life. So let's end our sermon today with these words of gracious invitation from the Lord of grace himself. These are the words of Jesus from Matthew 11, 28 through 29. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank